We've been making our way through the practical application section of the book of Romans. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 14. As I mentioned, chapter 14 deals primarily with um, how do we deal with matters of conscience when we differ on our opinions um, about what's right, what's wrong. And really last week, the first 12 verses or so were specifically targeted on our attitudes. What do we think? Today, Paul continues the discussion by really looking more at behavior. In other words, taking those attitudes, and what do those attitudes look like once you start to act upon them? The situation that that Paul actually faced was this. Some felt that they were still beholden to the rituals of the Old Testament. Remember, the Roman churches were a mix of some Jews that had come to Christ as well as some Gentiles that had come to Christ. And so there's obviously going to be some differences of opinion because the Jews were steeped in Old Testament theology. They had the ritualistic rules and the laws. They were um, accustomed to practicing certain um, food rituals, what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. But they were also accustomed to practicing certain holy days, certain days that they were expected to celebrate. For instance, they would celebrate the Sabbath starting on Saturday evening. The Gentiles weren't accustomed to those things. They were aware of them, but not necessarily accustomed to them. And so as you end up with this mix of Jews and Gentiles in the body, you're going to end up with some clashes. In other words, um, are the Gentiles supposed to practice the Sabbath? Well, what about the Jews? Should they worship on Sunday, which is what the Gentiles were more inclined to do. What about certain foods? The Jews couldn't eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, based on Old Testament law, but the Gentiles didn't feel they were bound by that. And so you have this clash, and so within the church at Rome, you had these differing opinions as to what was right and what was wrong. And they weren't about theology, they weren't about doctrine, they were really matters of conscience. What an individual felt was right or wrong in how they practiced their faith. And so it caused some divisions or tension within the body. So Paul had to provide some instructions. So last week he gave us some principles to use in terms of our attitude. The first thing he said was that um, we should accept one another rather than judge one another. So we should learn to accept one another in those differences and not judge one another. But he also said we shouldn't hold others in contempt. And so he dealt with two particular groups of people. He referred to them as the strong and the weak. And as we talked about, that has more to do with one's theological understanding than it does their faith itself. Meaning that the strong in faith were those who had a um, much better informed understanding of what was required. So, for instance, Paul himself didn't feel as though he was bound to still practice many of the Old Testament rituals because he understood the freedom he now had in Christ. So he had a well-informed, well-developed sense of theology and understanding, which gave him a certain amount of freedom in Christ. He would refer to himself as somebody strong. The weak weren't specifically weak in terms of their faith wasn't strong, but rather their understanding was somewhat underdeveloped. They still felt that their faith required them to abide by the Old Testament rules and regulations, and they didn't quite understand the freedom that they had in Christ. And so he talks to those two individuals. So he tells the one, don't look down upon and judge those that are different than you. But then he told the others, well, don't hold them in contempt when they do things you don't agree with or disagree with. So you have these two things, don't judge and don't hold one another in contempt. He also went on to remind them that even though they held different convictions, each one is attempting to honor Christ by what they do. They all serve the same Lord, and isn't that really the case? We have differences of opinions here in terms of what we can and cannot do, what's permissible and what's not permissible. And again, we're talking outside those areas of of theology or 
doctrine specifically. But wouldn't we be willing to say that each of us is really just trying to serve Christ? And so he reminded them to keep that in mind. The last thing he had mentioned was that it's ultimately God's right to judge, not ours. Now, that doesn't mean we can't call one another another out when it comes to sin. We talked about Galatians chapter 6 briefly, where the call there is, you see a brother caught in sin, approach him, confront him with the purpose of winning his obedience. You know, James says at the close of his letter that the one who saves a brother from sin saves a soul from death. So we do have these charges and these calls to confront one another in sin, But those need to be somewhat relaxed when it deals with just matters of conscience and conviction where the scriptures aren't really clear. Um, Alfredo and I had a conversation last night about some things, and one of the things we talked about was when God doesn't specifically spell it out or lay it out in detail, there has to be some freedom and some liberty there. And so that's what we're talking about here. So we looked at some of those things last week. Today, Paul is going to address what does that look like then when you actually put feet to it. So we're going to talk more about behavior today. So we're in chapter 14, starting in verse 13. I'm going to read through parts of this here. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 13, Paul says this, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put a stumbling, or I'm sorry, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in another brother's way. I know that I am convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for, for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is good for you become spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Let's go ahead and break this down. So Paul starts here with this. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. We would probably add to that, don't hold each other in contempt as well, because that's what he did last week. But he adds another charge to this. Notice he says this in the second half of verse 3. But rather, determine this. Not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in a brother's way. So he goes, he takes it a, a little bit further than last week. He says, don't judge or don't hold in contempt. That's attitude. And now he goes on to behavior by saying, don't put a stumbling block in somebody else's way. It's interesting, he uses a play on words here. Um, it's from the word judge. If you were to translate this a little bit more literally... Um, it would kind of be along this lines. Let us not judge one another anymore, but judge this. Kind of an interesting play on words. Um, we're not to judge one another, but we should judge what Paul says. In other words, consider what I'm saying here. Does this make sense? And so the challenge he gives to us is this. Never place an obstacle or a trap. And those are the two words that he uses there. One is the idea of hunting a trap. The second is an obstacle. So he says that we're not supposed to place a trap or an obstacle in somebody else's way by our behavior. Now that obstacle or trap he's referring to is ultimately um, referring to a trap or an obstacle causing somebody to sin. So the concept, the idea here is that our behavior, whatever we do when we exercise our conscience or our liberty, should not in any way cause somebody else to sin. Now that's important because he's not talking here about simply something that might make somebody uncomfortable or something that somebody else may simply disagree with. He's specifically saying a trap or an obstacle which leads somebody to actually sin. That's the challenge. There are many things that we may do or think or believe 
are appropriate for us that some others are going to disagree with. And that's not what Paul is calling us to here. He's not saying you can't ever do anything that somebody else disagrees with because, folks, we couldn't do anything. Remember I shared the example of this friend of mine from... from uh, he wasn't in seminary. But I met him when I was in seminary. He was a co-worker of mine who was an old-order German Baptist. We, we did not have the same convictions on the kind of clothes we would wear. And so if I were to use as my barometer, well, I don't want in any way to have this individual look at me and think that what I'm doing is wrong. So therefore, I'm going to have to show up in Amish garb because that's what he wore. Well, I showed up dressing like this. Okay? Now, I think I shared another story about a friend of mine, a pastor, who went to a, 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 a um, very legalistic um, King James-only church. And they paraded his wife down to the front and made her sit right in the front, and then the pastor preached a sermon against women wearing pants. Um, to be real honest here, folks, if we were to follow this idea that, well, I can't do anything, it just might cause somebody a little bit of uncomfortableness, none of you women would be wearing pants here this morning. Because there are some in Christian circles that think it's wrong for women to wear pants. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying we shouldn't do something that causes others to actually sin. And that's sort of the key here. That's the idea of the stumbling block or the trap. That's why he uses those particular words. Notice what he says in verse 14. While someone may, or while something may be permissible in and of itself, he says, it may still be sin for some. Look at verse 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Paul had used the example of meat sacrificed to idols. Some Christians, like the Jews, believe that because the meat that was found in the marketplace had been sacrificed to idols by the Greeks who were selling it, they, they felt they couldn't eat it. Because somehow they would be worshipping idols by doing that. It was unclean, unfit for consumption. But Paul says here he's convinced that nothing was unclean. There's a difference of opinion. The Jews thought it was unclean. Paul said, no, it's not unclean. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, the reason Paul says it wasn't unclean is because he says, look, if we really understand, um, there's no such thing as idols. That meat, even though they said they were sacrificing it to idols, there were no idols there to accept it, so there's nothing that's changed about the meat. It's just fine. Go ahead and eat it, is Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So he says, I'm convinced there's nothing unclean about this meat. But he does say, but to him who thinks it's unclean, it is. A little bit interesting statement. What determines whether that meat is unclean or should be or should not be eaten? In this case, Paul said, one's own conscience. In other words, Paul says, I don't think it's unclean because there's no such thing as idols. I can eat it and my conscience is clean. But the Jew who still said, nah, I, uh, I got a problem with that, and still believed it was sin, Paul says, guess what? To him it's sin, if he eats it, because he's violating his conscience. Something God has given him to help to regulate behavior. So Paul says, engaging in behavior that um, causes that individual to stumble and do something that's against his conscience is sin. Look at verse 15, he says, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So we've got this interesting dynamic going on here. Paul says, look, you may know that it's fine to eat meat, but you've got a brother who's still struggling with that. He's not matured in his understanding of his freedom in Christ yet. He still thinks he's bound to that Old Testament. He still thinks maybe, maybe those false gods are demons or whatever it is, and so he's got a problem with that meat being sacrificed to him, and so he's not going to touch it. So you've got an option here. You basically just go... 
You know, a guy just doesn't understand, I'm going to do it anyway. And you go ahead and you barrel through and you do it. That's one option, right? The other option is you sit back and you go, hmm, no, I don't, I don't want to cause him to stumble. I don't want to put a trap before him. And so Paul says that if you don't, or if you um, do that, if you just barge ahead, he says you're going to not walk in love because you're hurting your brother. He even goes as far as to say, destroy him. It's kind of a some strong language. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 with me. I think we'll get a better picture of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is explaining this, that there's no such thing as idols. But he says, not all men really understand this yet. Not all believers have come to understand. In other words, there are some who are theologically still somewhat underdeveloped, if you will. They don't quite understand their freedom they have in Christ. And so Paul then is trying to walk them through this minefield, and he says this in verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours, this understanding that, hey, I can eat meat sacrificed to idols, because I recognize that it's just meat. He says, don't let this, or um, take care that this liberty of yours not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, those who haven't come to that point yet. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, in other words, an understanding that it's, it's fine to do the meat, if they see you dining in an idol's temple, will this not, or um, I'm sorry, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For though you are for through your knowledge, he who, is, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whom Christ's sake died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So basically you have this picture. Paul says, look, if, it, it may be perfectly fine for you to eat meat, but if you go and you do this publicly, you do it in an idol's temple, what's going to happen? You've got a fellow Jew there who's looking at this and sees you doing it. He's going to assume that's just part of the worship, that Paul is going and eating at the temple and doing what the Greeks do, which is sacrificing meat and then eating it and therefore participating in the pagan worship. And this other brother who looks up to you, Paul, sees this. Is he not going to be encouraged to do the same thing? Now, what's interesting about that is he doesn't have the theological framework to understand what Paul is doing. He just assumes Paul's engaging in the worship, engaging in their activity, doing what the pagans do, and it ends up weakening his conscience then. It's kind of an interesting dynamic. And it's a, it's a tight rope to walk, if you will. Because, in some part, Paul's just doing what he thinks he should do. It's free for him to eat. But because he's got others that watch him and look up to him, they don't necessarily understand that. And they can be led into sin, thinking that it's, normally, it's perfect to do what Paul is doing, but they don't understand that Paul understands there's no such thing as an idol, so he's really not worshipping those idols. But from the outside, it looks like that Paul is doing just that. And as a result, then, they're encouraged to do it as well. We've talked about this before. A possible example from today is drinking. The Bible doesn't prohibit drinking alcohol. In fact, it, you know, the fact that Paul encourages Timothy to take some alcohol to help his stomach um, indicates that he's either causing Timothy to sin or it's not a sin to drink alcohol in and of itself. And people will argue, well, it wasn't the say, folks, it was alcohol. 
Otherwise, the Bible wouldn't say you couldn't get drunk on it. I love people that say, well, that was just more grape juice. Then evidently the Bible's talking about getting drunk on grape juice at times. You know, But it was alcohol. Okay, It's not the drinking of alcohol that was prohibited in the Scriptures. What was prohibited was getting drunk. Excessive drinking. Okay, So when you think about that parallel today, is it appropriate for a Christian to drink alcohol? The Bible doesn't outright condemn it. I would argue, yeah, there's times where it is permissible and times where it's not permissible. And according to Paul, when it's not permissible is when it causes others to stumble. Now, how might that work out? Let's say you've got a Christian who says, I have no trouble drinking, and so every time you see him, he's got a beer in his hand, or you see him in you know, college, you're going out to the nightclubs and doing everything that the pagans do. Might that be an opportunity to cause somebody else to struggle? It might. If it encourages them to drink, that's perfectly normal and fine. I'm fortunate that, you know, I, I didn't really engage in a lot of drinking when I graduated. You know, drinking age was 18, but I didn't like the taste of alcohol. And I feel like in some respects God kind of protected me because the college scene, we went out all the time. And I tried to develop a taste for alcohol because that's what everybody was doing. And I would go out with a lot of my campus crusade for Christ friends initially to go down to the bars, the broad house and other places where everybody was drinking. Okay? I just never developed a taste for alcohol. Okay? Um, so we don't, you know, Amy and I don't drink today. It's not necessarily because of a conviction one way or the other primarily. But I don't have a problem with people having a beer at home or having alcohol at home in the privacy of their own home. Now that may startle some folks. We choose not to do that. Okay? Even if I liked the stuff, I have made decisions not to do that. And part of it is because I stand up here. I try to set an example. I don't want others in the church that may look upon that and say, you know, when we go over to the Pamperins for a second Friday, we happen to see all their alcohol sitting down in their cupboards. Because that may cause others to stumble. You know? We want our kids to grow up in an environment where drinking alcohol doesn't seem normal. We just don't want to desensitize them to that. But it's not because we think that if they had a beer when they turn old enough to drink, it's a sin. We just don't want them to grow up in an environment where they're desensitized to it. Because the world does that. The world says it's normal, it's okay, and everything's fine. Okay? And so we've got this example today with alcohol where we don't all agree necessarily. But in that disagreement, we have to decide when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate. And not everybody's going to draw the line in exactly the same place. But hopefully we'll all draw the line where we say... You know what, I'm not going to allow that particular issue to become a stumbling block or a trap for somebody else. (coughs) That's the key here. And that's what Paul is actually addressing. Now, my brother and I um, disagree. You know, we don't want the alcohol in our house. My brother and his wife love a glass of wine when they go to bed at night. Okay? We haven't broke fellowship over it. Okay? Um... We just disagree on that. So basically what Paul does here is he said we should not allow our freedom to become this form of evil or this stumbling block. Look at what he says in verses 16 to 18. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Basically, when we, when we abuse our freedom, the thing that is good for us becomes evil. It almost becomes a weapon in some respects. So he says, don't let that happen. Don't let what is a good thing for you 
the freedom you have in Christ, um, your ability to enjoy certain things because you understand that they're appropriate when you celebrate them just before God. He says, don't let that become spoken of as evil, as a bad thing. And when we allow that to happen, we, according to Paul here, we misunderstand the kingdom of God. I love the fact that he says, look, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking and all that kind of stuff. In other words, the kingdom of God isn't just about you having free reign to do whatever you want. He says, really, the kingdom of God is about peace and righteousness and love and joy and serving one another, all those good things. That's really what the kingdom of God is about. Um, Those of us that maybe fall prey to the trap that I got saved and now whatever I want to do is fine for me to do, misunderstand what God saved us for, don't we? It's not about that. We have this freedom in Christ, but that's not why Christ saved us, just so we could go off and do whatever we want to do. It's really about righteousness and peace. He goes on to say that when we avoid harming others and hurting others by our liberty, that's acceptable and approved. Not just by God, but by men. That really ought to be the target. We ought to be looking at our Christian liberty and saying, you know what, Um, I've got the right to do certain things, um, but ultimately what should guide that is the fact that I don't want that to hurt somebody, and I'd rather be approved by God and have a good reputation among men. That ought to be a guiding factor in that. He goes on, he says, in verses 19 through 23 now, that we should be willing to give up some of our freedoms for the sake of peace and building up one another. We ought to be willing to give up some of those freedoms. This reminds me of Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Christ willingly gave up the use of certain divine attributes so that he could come in to serve us. So we have this example in Christ who could have done anything but chose to give up certain divine, the use of certain divine attributes so that he might serve us, save us, and provide us with an example. Look at verse 19 through, verses 19 through 23. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. There's basically three primary charges or imperatives in this section I'm going to highlight here for us. In other words, Paul, as he's walking through this, gives us three commands, if you will. The first one is this. It comes in verse verse 19. At all times we're to pursue two things. One is peace. He says, so then, pursue peace, or the things which make for peace. I love the fact that he uses the word pursue. Um, It means to strive for, to go after. What we really ought to be trying to do is to build peace within the body of Christ. We know how that's accomplished. Peace is always accomplished through compromise, isn't it? Now, I didn't say appeasement. You know, I think during World War II they tried to appease Hitler. It didn't work. That's not compromise. But peace is always achieved through compromising, giving up certain things. And so in this particular instance, we might have to give up certain liberties to, to have peace within the body. Okay? But the second thing he says we're to pursue is building up one another. 
this construction term literally means just that, to build something up. It's sometimes translated as edification in the New Testament. It means to help somebody improve or to help somebody become better, help somebody become stronger in their faith. A little bit later in chapter 15, why don't you turn there, just go to chapter 15, the first three verses, Paul repeats this same idea. He says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, he says, we're supposed to pursue peace and pursue the building up of one another. Our focus shouldn't be on exercising our own freedoms and liberties as much as it should be building up somebody else and building peace within the body. And then he gives us a great example in Christ. That's what Christ did. It's exactly what Christ did. And that should be our example. So that's the first command, is to pursue peace and the building up of somebody else. The second command, if you will, is found in verse 20. He says, we're not to tear down a brother or sister in Christ for the sake of our freedom. It reads this way, verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Another way to say that is, don't allow what you're doing to tear down somebody else. God's work. All things indeed are clean. In other words, things are permissible. We have a lot of freedom in Christ. We're not bound by the religious rituals of the Old Testament. If we don't want to celebrate the Sabbath, we don't have to celebrate the Sabbath. Instead, we can worship on Sunday. If we want to worship on Tuesday night instead, we can do it on Tuesday night. Okay? We don't have to celebrate all the special holidays that we don't want to, that the Old Testament called for. If we decide we want to eat shellfish and shrimp and fish, guess what, folks? We can do it. I can't because it makes my throat close up, but... We have the freedom to do that, even though the Old Testament, they said they can't eat that. You know, I love pork. I have sausage every morning for breakfast. I have the freedom to eat pork. Hallelujah. Gotta love the bacon, right? <laughs> there's, there's freedom that we have to do that. However, however, it's not about that. And Paul says here, I shouldn't tear down a brother. So, if I have a Christian who thinks that he has to live by the Old Testament laws, and I invite him over for breakfast some particular morning, or we go to Bob Evans, I'm not going to have a pork sausage in front of him. Because he's still struggling with that. Because it's not about that. I'd rather enjoy his fellowship than to say, darn it, I want that pork or that bacon, and that's more important than me hanging out with him this morning. And so I'm going to have that pork and bacon, and you know what? If it causes tension and stress on this particular appointment that I have for breakfast with this individual, so be it. He's just going to have to grow up and mature. Paul says, don't tear him down. Don't tear him down. So even if things are clean, Paul says, they become evil for the one who does them and causes offense. Which means if I do that, and I'm chowing down on a pork sausage or a slab of bacon, and I'm causing genuine issues, it's wicked. It's wickedness. It's sin. The third imperative Paul gives is found in verse 22. It's this, we should keep some things, some behavior between us and God. We should keep some things, some behavior, simply between us and God. Verse 22. The faith which you have, he says, have as your own conviction before God. 
Most English translations render it as, the faith you have, keep yourself before God, or keep between yourself and God. He's talking about behavior here. He's basically saying that certain convictions are best practiced privately, simply between you and God, where God is the only witness, rather than in public where it might cause others to sin. So certain things, he says, keep between yourself and God. Go ahead and celebrate those things. He serves it with a warning in verse 22 as well. He says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. How can you condemn yourself in what you approve? Well, by doing what you approve in front of somebody who it genuinely causes to struggle. You've just condemned yourself. Because it's sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. In other words, he's saying there, everything is permissible for me to do. Meaning, obviously, he's not talking about sin. He's talking about those differences of opinions and convictions. All things are permissible. But he's like, not everything has value in it. Or not everything um, are profitable for me or for the people around me. In fact, Paul elsewhere says, you know, if I have to, in fact, we read this earlier, if I have to stop eating meat altogether because it's going to impact my witness, then I'm willing to do that. Because it's not profitable for me to then eat those things if it's destroying my witness or destroying my ministry. And so Paul tried to focus on what was profitable, not just what was permissible for him. He repeated in 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Not all things build up other people. So he repeats that same sentiment here and calls on us not to condemn ourselves by what we approve. Instead, he says we should be completely convinced that what we do in public, ultimately in private as well, is something which the Lord approves. If not, he says, if there's any doubt and we do it anyway, Paul says that we condemn ourselves because it's not from faith. So what's the bottom line in all this, folks? It's not really all that hard to understand. We've been given a lot of liberty in Christ. There are things that the Bible doesn't directly address. You know, Amy and I are talking about maybe seeing a movie this afternoon. The Bible doesn't tell us that we can or can't see a movie. It doesn't tell us if we have to see a G-rated movie versus a PG versus a PG-13. It doesn't give us, you know, I, I can't turn to, you know, First Marcus chapter 1. Thou shalt not see... You know, the greatest show on earth, or whatever it is. Um, So we have to figure out what's permissible with that. We know there are some Christians who don't believe that you should go to a movie theater. I grew up with a a gentleman who was from a very, very strict um, Baptist family. Um, I'm not really convinced they were saved. I think it was much more um, sort of a a thing you do. Um, But they were not permitted to go out and see movies. And one of the things this young man struggled with, and he shared it with my family, was he had kind of gotten soured on the Christian faith, partly because he said he saw the hypocrisy in it. And he shared the story of, he said, when I was growing up, we were so strict. We were at church every Sunday morning. Um, We could not go to a movie theater to watch movies because that was sin. So he never got to go to see movies when all of his friends went. But he said, but my parents will rent those same exact movies and we'll watch them at home. And he said, I never understood that. 
He said, to me it seemed all about just the image thing, you know, that somehow we couldn't be seen out in public doing it, but we could do it in the privacy of our own home. And so he struggled with that, and it kind of made him somewhat feel a bit hypocritical. Okay? Um, The Bible doesn't answer whether or not we can see movies or not. Now, there are rules and principles that we can apply as to what's healthy for us and good and honorable to see and how we should do all that, and we have to use that to ferret that out. Um, But we're going to disagree as to what's permissible and what's not. So what becomes the barometer? What do we do? We have to learn to take and suspend some of those liberties sometimes. The example Paul gives us here is he says, practice them before God if you feel they're okay. But if it's going to cause somebody else to stumble or to struggle, then don't do that in a way that would cause them to stumble or struggle. It doesn't say that we have to allow other people to regulate every aspect of our lives, what we do in private. But it does say that we have to be very careful when we exercise our liberties in front of those that might disagree. So the general rule of thumb for me would be this. If I know that something I'm going to do is going to cause somebody else to struggle or stumble and I invite them along to join me in some activity and I know it's a challenge for them, I shouldn't do it. In my case, I think I have a special role in the sense that, again, I stand up here every Sunday, which means I probably am going to apply some of those rules a little stricter, meaning... If somebody were to ask, do you drink at home, Mike? I'm going to say, no, I don't. Partly because I think the rules might be a little bit different for those that are in leadership positions because I think we have to probably suspend some of our liberties even maybe a little more than the average person simply because of the role that we hold. You know, I'm told in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that there shouldn't be a handle to hold on to, that I should be above reproach. Okay? That's not the same standard applied to the average Christian in the church. Now, is it a good rule to live by? Probably So I might have to suspend some of those things a little bit more strictly or severely than others do. Okay, But either way, we all have to do it. Because it's supposed to be about peace and the building up of the body. So, last week we talked about attitudes, not looking down upon each other with contempt or judging one another because of our differences of of conviction, but rather understanding that we're all just trying to serve the Lord. If it's a matter of sin, Jesus says take the plank out of your own eye first, then go deal with the speck in your brother's eye. We're still called to look at each other's lives, and if we see somebody that's sinning, to address them, to talk with them. But when it comes to matters that we can't really go to the Scriptures and say, no, it says right here this is wrong, don't do it, then we have to be careful. And that's where we have to learn to exercise our liberties in a way that maybe we have to suspend them sometimes, maybe sometimes we just have to practice them in the privacy of our own home before God. And in doing so, We can't cause others to stumble. We shouldn't put a trap or a stumbling block in their way, but instead should be more interested in building them up and encouraging them. And if that means we have to suspend some of those liberties, shouldn't we do it? For peace and for the building up of encouraging of the body. Sound fair? Sound easy to practice? Not always, but... um, but it's good for us as a body. I'll be real frank, folks. I love New Hope. I think I, if I had to say do we struggle with any of this, I don't, I, I don't know that we do. But we're all individuals and we probably struggle at times. I'm simply saying that I love our church family. I think we are very gracious because I know not everybody agrees on every issue here. Um, but man, we sure all get along pretty well, don't we? And that is something I just really appreciate tremendously. I love the fact that we had sausage last night at the, at the Ramirez's and that nobody here has a problem with sausage. But... Um, <laughs>